Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. You're on Team Human, conscious intervention in the machine. There's a reason for our current predicament, an anti-human agenda embedded in our technology, our markets, and our major cultural institutions, from education and religion to civics and media. The means human beings use to connect to one another have been turned against their original purpose and now serve to isolate and atomize, turning normally cooperative beings into competitive assholes. This reversal of figure and ground stops here. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Our guests today, neuroscientist Bill Softke and his partner, narrative theorist Cressilia Benford. But we need ways of getting at the truth and keeping the truth, and we need ways of getting humans back in vibratory contact to recognize how we really resonate. Bill and Cressilia will be showing us how the technologies we use to connect to one another lack the fidelity required to establish trust between us. It's time for some analog love. Let's intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. I became a boxing fan this week for about an hour. There's this giant uh, big money pay-per-view boxing match that happened between a championship boxer, Floyd Mayweather, and a wrestler, a real wrestler, a mixed martial artist, Conor McGregor. And it was like the biggest boxing match of all time in terms of money or viewers or payday. And it became hard not to get swept up in the cultural moment, um, if only because to watch this thing on TV cost $99, which stimulated some old cyberpunk gene in me to figure out how to get to watch it for free. Uh, which turned out not to really require a hack at all. All I needed to do was uh, go to Periscope, which is like Twitter's version of uh, Facebook Live. It's this live streaming app where you just click on it and broadcast whatever you're doing wherever you are. It's sort of the final downfall of reality TV or something. But with Periscope, uh, a lot of people just put the smartphone in front of the television and rebroadcast what was happening live on pay-per-view for anyone who wanted to see it. And it was interesting. It required a little bit of work because um, Periscope and the people at Twitter knew this was happening. It didn't want to be blamed for black market video and breaking laws and such. So they blocked the search terms. So if you searched for Mayweather or McGregor or the word fight, 
you just get no results. Sorry, there's no results, even though hundreds of people were doing this. But then if you typed in a word like, you know, live or uh, uh, round or um, TV or pay-per-view, you could find a search and then find the actual thing. And it was it was really weird to be watching somebody's TV being broadcast over a smartphone along with, you know, tens of thousands of other people watching that very same thing and they click on a little on a little icon and it makes hearts float up through the screen just to acknowledge oh thank you for doing this so all these people are sending hearts so you're seeing this boxing match happen with little hearts floating up over the boxing gloves and what's happening but the the real reason people were watching this was not just um, like me to break a $99 paywall or to see boxing at its best because this wasn't even really a boxing match. It was a match between Floyd Mayweather, who's a, a championship boxer, and Conor McGregor, who's a championship world wrestler. I mean, not worldwide wrestling, not the, the performative wrestling, but uh, mixed martial art wrestling, you know, kicking and throwing and pinning and all that stuff that you see on, on those ring matches now. The fight itself uh, was one of the first uh, mass cultural spectacles I've seen draw people's attention in the same way that, I guess, terrorism does or weather does. There's almost no giant shared cultural events. You know, there's no last episode of MASH or Rhoda's wedding or the kinds of things that draw everybody together. I know uh, uh, Princess Diana's death was one of those major television events. I guess 9-11 was, the the Trump election was. Um, but this was a, a sporting event that seemed to draw all of this... Uh, cultural interest. And that really forces someone like me to look and say, what really is going on here? What are the seeds of this thing that's generating this interest? And as I look at it, a match between a disciplined, black, professional, cool-headed boxer who's following the boxing rules and a wilder, white, guy from another uh, another world, really, um, coming in and not wanting to follow all quite the same rules and not be as cool and deliberate and technical as the veteran and instead come in and really just kind of mess things up. I couldn't help but see it as a stand-in for the election that we just went through. The, you know, the wild, white, great white hope of a Donald Trump coming in and reestablishing a certain kind of order or disorder or disarray on the uh, the calm, collected uh, system of government that uh, a lot of people feel no longer uh, no longer serves them. It was really interesting because here were a whole lot of fans looking for a brawl. Here were refs and judges constantly warning, you've got to follow the rules. You've got to be professional here. You can't just, you know, go jumping around in the ring. You can't hit someone in the back of the head. You know, this, the kinds of warnings that they were giving Donald Trump before debates. You can't follow Hillary around on the stage. You can't go to her lectern. You can't, you know, <laughs> jump around. And the lead up to this thing was as ugly as the presidential election, the the name calling, the media lead up, the the whole thing was really uh, primitive and uh, and and crude in a in an almost scary way to say what is our culture about? What are we doing? You know, will the outsider long shot guy will he win? Will he get killed? Is this even responsible? But the difference was, after the thing was over, the two of them behaved like perfect gentlemen. The whole thing was a show, and now the show was over. And while that made me glad, 
it actually made me upset for the fact that in our election, it wasn't just entertainment. You know, yeah, as entertainment, it's it's stupid. Maybe it's it's pulling on some racist chords and it's triggering some bizarre, awful stuff. But at least it's just an entertainment spectacle. Politics is not just spectacle. It's the process of how we govern ourselves as people. And this blur between entertainment, between spectacle and governance, this is what the Frankfurt Group was warning us about. This is what Adorno and Horkheimer and those guys were were actually writing about. I'm, I'm sorry, but real governance is not the place to play out cultural ideologies. It is real, boring, and dependent not on strident, clear contrasts, but messy coordination and compromise. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. You're on Team Human. Our guests today, neuroscientist Bill Sofke and his partner, narrative theorist Cressilia Benford. Okay, so Bill and Cressilia, I, I got an email that from you that I guess it was actually a few weeks ago when you were yeah. embarking or just launching this. And it, it's both highly resonant and highly mysterious to me at the same time, which is... <laughs> Of the sign of all good things. So maybe the the best thing, the best way to start this would be for you to orient me into what is it that you're just publishing now? What did you figure out? Well, the short version of it is that we live in Silicon Valley. So for us, it's very obvious that more people are consuming more digital stimuli than ever before. And that the ratio of digital stimuli to analog stimuli has shifted so that the amount of digital stimuli is tremendous. And we wanted to know what happens to the brain when it's consuming digital stimuli. Does it matter? And we turned to the laws of information transfer and information flow to be able to answer that question. And the laws of information flow are like, you mean like neurological laws? Good question. Yeah, I I tend to cringe at getting anything with the word neuro in it now, even though I got my credential on that. It turns out that kind of law is based on experiment and observation. And, you know, observation is good and stuff. But we physicists like to think we got a better game going on in, you know, the laws of gravity and, you know, electromagnetism and thermodynamics and stuff like that. So that's kind of where we're going. We're going Shannon's laws of information transfer, channel capacity, bandwidth, signal noise and related laws of statistical inference involved in curve fitting and compression and model resolution and things of that sort. Right. So information flow, more the way that IBM would have thought about it back in Mandelbrot's day than information flow in the, in the way that uh, brain scientists would think about it. Well, that's because brain scientists aren't using the right language because they just they have posited that neurons are these things and they've run off describing neurons without asking whether neurons are really the key element of brains. But brain science is a whole rat hole, which is not really part of this paper, but I'd love to get to at some point. All right. So you looked, in order to figure out if being exposed to or doing a majority of our, our thinking in digital spaces and with digital input has had some impact or effect on us, you've looked at the way information moves. Yes. In a way, the IBM analogy I think is quite useful because the laws of information flow and information transfer, which were first uh, codified by Claude Shannon in the 40s, they're the same laws that make the digital age possible. It's what allows us to talk about information in quantitative terms and not just qualitative terms. So in our work, we're looking at the qualitative aspect of digital signals 
So their format is not the format that our brain expects to consume. Our brain can compensate for that, but it creates some problems that we talk about in our paper. Right. And then, so, so for the for the for the audience that might not be familiar with this, we're talking about even the simple difference between an analog vinyl record and a CD is that an analog record has only these qualities of sound where there's no math involved. There's no symbolism in it. It's just a physical thing happening. Whereas digital recordings quantize sound. It's not necessarily a compromise, but they find at the a nearest uh, almost numerical or digital equivalent of something. And that requires a little bit of sawing off here and there so that you've got a number that corresponds to something rather than just some event that's analogous to something. Yep. It turns out that the difference between analog recording, like on a piece of wax or vinyl or um, magnetic tape versus digital recording is the same as the difference between reality and representations of reality. Reality is actually continuous. That's, that's mm. key to this entire framework we're using is that the actual real world is not some hyperspace of signal processing of, of deep learning or something. The actual real world is three dimensions and it's continuous down to the Planck scale. Really? Um, so you keep zooming in, you're not going to get down to, uh, there's no code down there somewhere? Not, not for us. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, that's the problem. Neuroscience just missed this part. Neuroscience has been running around treating our input our sensory input as if it's a hyperspace problem which requires statistical inference to even figure out the dimensionality of it's like no we know the dimensionality it's 3d it's continuous time continuous space next all right do reality is real yeah <laughs> yeah and it looks pretty much like it looks you know that's what our brains do basically the starting point of this paper is we just assume that our brains do the very thing every one of us knows every microsecond of the day is make 3d pictures of the outside world and the inside world but the outside world is there. So in other words, before you turn your head around, there's still stuff behind you. And when you turn your head, it's not just rendering really fast. It's, well, it's back there. It, yeah, the stuff is actually back there. And therefore, your head has to keep track of it. Because the information isn't coming into your head when it's behind you. So somehow your own internal rendering engine... It has to do a really good job so that it just you know it's there and it's always there and everything is synchronous even when you're not looking at it. That is right. a phenomenon. Just we're doing the tech specs on the brain. I mean, how on earth does does a brain do that? And what information does it require? What temporal resolution? Right. Okay. So the real world is not a simulation. We're not in a uh, computer simulation of some graduate student. We're in a real three-dimensional <laughs> space. Oh, my God. No, yes, we are. That We are positing we're in a real three-dimensional space. I mean... Right, or we're starting know, with that as Yeah, there are people who would argue otherwise, but yeah, that's the, the assumption is reality is real. <laughs> right. Yes. Okay, so we start with that. And then so everything digital on some level or other is a symbol system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yes, that, that's like a mathematical tautology, I guess. But when it comes out of your, your what are those speakers people buy now and stick around their houses? Those crazy... Uh, God. The Bo they're, well, Bose is the one that Sonos. So, yeah. Oh, okay. So you get your Sonos speakers around and, you know, Neil Young's coming through your Sonos speaker. Your body's going to react to that as if it's just a record, right? The thing about analog recording is with your LP, you can actually record something in true continuous format. But it's still sampling only the microphone sampled one place in space. And so when you reproduce it, it comes out this moving piece of cardboard in the speaker, which doesn't get all the phases right and is, again, one point in space. And it's not even mm -hmm. a single point source. So our ears evolved, and the, the weird, funny shape of the pinna of our ears evolved to make sense of where sounds are in space, you know, as a 3D process. You know, our sensory system didn't evolve for language or symbols or anything. It evolved for sound localization, mm. even more than source identification. And so when you put music through a speaker, any kind of speaker anywhere, it's a severe insult to that part of our sensory processing, no matter what the fidelity. Right. I find that talking about uh, digital music versus analog music is a great way to help people understand our point about calibration. And right. people who are real audiophiles who like to listen to analog music and have very um, good equipment, you know, will often claim to hear the difference between that and uh, an MP3 file, which I can definitely 
hear the difference in being a musician and also growing up with a really good stereo system and having an uncle who was a DJ, like music has been a huge part of my life. But young people, like our kids, for instance, they think that, you know, the difference doesn't really matter. And they say, oh, it doesn't matter. It's good enough, the MP3 file. And it's that kind of slide that we're talking about that after a while with the digital communication, digital renderings of, you know, social environments, you know, people go, well, it's good enough. And they make do with it, but it's actually not good enough. And that is one of our main points. Yeah, it's, I'd say that there's two layers to that. The first is this economic slide where the new cheaper version is always almost as good as the previous version it replaces. And as long as there's that kind of a price benefit, the quality of things slides down. Like cell phone conversations are far, far worse than landlines. But only those of us in the old school know that. But the other and more important piece is that all of our technologies were optimized for recognition. You know, they do focus groups and tests and find out what people can notice and then what they stop noticing. And they stop investing resources, computational resources, signal processing resources, on things that people can't notice. That's called common sense consumer testing. Right. Unfortunately, 99% of the bandwidth of our nervous system is subconscious. And that's kind of the design of having a nervous system. It's the definition of the problem space. It's not some weird new claim. And so we've got an economic system, which in two ways completely shortchanges the informational needs of the actual brains. So one reason we get things which are worse and worse informationally is the economic slide of you know, replacing um, voice with paper and then paper with email and email with text and text with Twitter, that kind of thing. There's always a smaller, basically, the more atomized the information package, the easier it is to monetize and trade and so forth. Unfortunately, the harder it is to validate and the less it means. So the very nature of using economics to move information back and forth has mathematical contradictions all the way to the core. But one of the ways we see that is that products get crappier and crappier as we think that we're getting a good replacement for the thing we already got used to. The second effect right. is the unconsciousness. Right. And just to clarify that, that, you know, it's the, uh, the optimization of compression. So as the companies are, you know, designing their compression algorithms and they're saying, oh, well, the people don't notice this or that. So that gets thrown out. But part of what we're talking about is even if we don't consciously notice, even the people who don't consciously notice how much information has been squeezed out due to the compression algorithm, our bodies notice it, our nervous systems notice it, and they crave it. And that is one of the reasons why a um, key motif in our work is sensory deprivation and uh, the concept of being informationally starved. Yeah, explain sensory deprivation and then what are the sort of long-term effects that you see of living that way? We, in our work, we modeled the uh, human nervous system, you know, and human sense-making activity as uh, a calibration activity. So we took that from uh, information foraging, work that's been done in information foraging, so we see the person going through the world, not exactly foraging information, but calibrating and basically having these sort of informational appetites that help them, that help them create a clean, accurate model of the world around them. And it takes a lot of information to be able to keep your model accurate and keep your predictions on point. And when you become decalibrated, your model becomes worse and worse and worse. But if you're just going with your uh, default calibration strategies, they won't help you in this current informational landscape. You have to actually um, very actively, very deliberately change your calibration strategies. You have to look for the actual the places where you're going to have a lot of the kind of information that we're talking about. That is basically non-semantic information. It, it doesn't have any obvious uh, symbolic value, but it has a calibrating value. Right. So help help our, our our listeners understand what's a situation where one's calibration strategies prove inappropriate to a digital environment. Well, an example. 
I like to use is if you're having a text exchange with someone, say you haven't seen them in real life in a long time, and you're trying to figure out where to go for dinner. And so you're texting back and forth about that. And there's been a lot of ambivalence in the text message and then the text exchange. And then all of a sudden it ends with the person you say, okay, let's just go for Italian. And the person writes back, fine, with no punctuation or anything. That's just it. Because you haven't seen that person in a long time, that fine is incredibly ambiguous. So that's a sort of way to think about decalibration that you haven't talked to that person in real life. So their way of interacting around these issues is not familiar to you. It's harder to make sense of that fine. And you feel uncertain and you feel, you wonder, you know, are they mad? Are they actually happy? Are they really fine? I don't know. And so the instinct in that kind of situation is to ask, you know, to want to text again. Like, are you sure? And I think a lot of us have been in that situation where we're having some sort of digitally mediated conversation or exchange, and we become uncertain about how the other person is feeling. And so then we want to ask more questions. But that medium actually is one of the main reasons for why you're uncertain. So continuing to ask questions over that medium isn't really going to help you. Right. You're just going to get under further layers of, of ambiguity. Yeah. Yes. Um, one another way to put it for those who are computer science minded. So that's the the disclaimer. Is There's that six of us in the audience? Cool. Um, yeah. For for that crowd, the original data format for a brain is to essentially gather information directly from the three dimensional world through the medium of air. It hits the sensors, the mechanoreceptors, and the eyeball, and so forth. It goes in to the brain, and it somehow gets reconstituted into a perfect virtual replica of the world around it. That's kind of the tech, the overall tech spec. And that is a phenomenal process, which nobody really understands the slightest about. But it is clear that it has to do the most it can with all the information it can, which means it has no validation format to make sure air didn't screw things up. There's no representational form anywhere in the brain system for the possibility that the sensory channel of air or the physical channel of air is somehow garbling or hostile. So we don't have space in our brains for having our, our senses screwed with. Our senses, we have to trust them absolutely implicitly. We can't authenticate anything on the way in. So right. we give it digital information and there's no way, we, A, there's no way to check whether it's really digital or not. I mean, if it looks like a 3D scene on my smartphone, which is a tiny piece of glass, then it, I kind of picture it as if it's a real false replica world to live in because I don't have any in between. Right. The other thing is if something goes wrong when we're conversing with a human, so the physical world is rather solid and if it starts coming apart, we get really upset like in earthquakes. But if something comes apart in a social relationship, we are hardwired to know it is the other person because it's not the heir's fault. We have no way to blame it on the air, so we blame it on the person. So anytime any mediated communication happens, and humans are the only creature that has mediated communication, so, you know, the chimps don't need to worry about this one. But if our mediated communication fails, we read it as a social failure of the counterparty. Wow. So even if we're saying, oh, look, I've got a bad connection. Let me talk to you tomorrow. Some part of me is thinking... No, this is a bad... Yeah, the, the uh, sum part, I put the here. sum. In, in sum, I would put 99.9%. .9%. Yeah. In terms of bandwidth, information flow, vibratory metadata, phase latency, any metric you want to put on it, what happens when there is even a latency jitter in a call, much less dropouts, much less misunderstanding or autocorrect errors or compression artifacts or any of that, any of those things get lobbed straight on the authentication metadata the high frequency back channel, which we use to validate the sender. So it is absolutely our trust channel, which gets corrupted by this stuff, not the content channel. So in other words, our, our internal sense of fidelity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Neuromechanical trust is our term for it. Right. But that trust has an emotional component of, is this safe? You know? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, in all of the research on digital uh, maladies and digital uh, dependencies, um, 
the thing that researchers find over and over again is that the more time you spend online, the more likely you are to feel lonely, anxious, and depressed. And that's the one thing that we can all agree on. What is um, under discussion, what people are trying to figure out is why um, has that correlation been found? Our mathematical model suggests that the reason for that is that the trust channel has been corrupted so that you have basically lost trust in your senses and you've lost trust in the people around you. And you can never feel certain that the semantic information that you are making sense of is actually true. And the trust channel in our reception, in our consciousness or subconscious, where is that taking its information or its input from? How is it? It's like it's like running alongside my conscious, you know, uh, uh, understanding of people's words. Well, we computer scientists tend to start at the most abstract layer, like the words and the concept and the symbolic representation. And then we allocate something we'll call a trust channel. And nature tends to do it the other way around. I mean, what the brain is built for is aggregating a whole bunch of pulses, which last about a millisecond, have probably a microsecond phase uncertainty. Um, we get about a million of those a second rattling in down the optic nerve and such. And the brain's job is to keep track of those as best it can and to predict them as best it can and to send out some more pulses to make that whole process keep rolling. So the brain doesn't start with this abstraction as any kind of concept. Its job is entirely to maintain the internal phase coherence of a bunch of highly precisely timed pulses. Um, and by the way, that's what my PhD thesis was about, and so I can go on and on. Um, but at that level, we have these things, this stuff called content, but that is a human invention. I'm not sure what a snake thinks is content or a mouse or a chimp thinks is content. So in, in that language, in the language of how the brain is actually wired, the trust channel isn't separate. The trust channel is the raw material. It's the, the raw um, image in the camera as opposed to the highly processed photoshopped image. But you're saying, though, that my that some part of me is is evaluating whether or not to trust the the way that I'm putting together these uh, impulses. In a way, um, in our stripped down model, the brain is a prediction engine, and it's taking in its sensory input and then making predictions about the future. And out of those predictions. And so that's a spectrum of possibilities, like a range of possibilities. And those different possibilities have a um, an error bar on them, basically, or a, um, a sense of certainty. Like, uh, you know, I've been walking, 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 and I feel 99.9% .9 certain that the next time my foot hits the ground, the ground will still be there. So it's in that sense, that's where the trust channel is. It's that error bar. It's that sense of certainty that what I think is going to happen is actually going to happen. And in any given moment, you know, as we're thinking about the future, we're not really imagining that one thing is going to happen. We're imagining several things. And we have a sense that some things are more likely than others. And um, it's that sense of what's likely and not likely that is that we're talking, that's right. what we're relating to the trust channel. And that's what's really disrupted. So if I'm listening to a human voice mm -hmm. and it's talking to me, there's things about the timbre of the voice and all and the pacing of the words, the softness or whatever that help me understand whether this person is going to punch me, kiss me or hug me <laughs> in the next yes. minute. Mm -hmm. you know, and when I reduce that bandwidth down to these little digital uh, uh, characters and a and a text box. Now I don't know anymore. The person said fine. Are they saying fine or are they saying fine? You know, yes. when I show up in front of that Italian restaurant that we've agreed to see, are they happy to see me or are they pissed off that they lost <laughs> a debate as to where we were going to go eat? Exactly. I don't know right. what just happened between us, much less where we are now and what that portends. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. exactly. So right now is that's saying, a shitty way to move through life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know. That, so, so I'm going to vote for Trump or something in that kind of a world. You know, well, actually, yeah. That I mean, that the reason that certain kinds of political messages travel better through digital media than others is a whole different question, and that relates to the the, the symmetry 
of you know the communications channel and stuff like that. But when we were talking about the version of trust, I was and the timbre of the voice, I was thinking that this setup you have here, where um, we're using nice microphones on what seems to be a very high quality, um, low latency bilateral audio channel, and um, Priscilla and I have these wonderful headphones on and stuff like that. That means we can hear you far better. We have a far better sense of when you're making a joke and exactly which word you said. No autocorrect errors here. And this degree of interactivity, it, it works because of the high frequency content of the audio channel and the low reciprocal latency and the, the zero dropouts and so forth. So if we wanted to degrade it, we could put it on a cell connection and things would be, you know, artifacted and compressioned out and want to degrade it further can transcribe it into words and degrade it further, you can transcribe it into texts and add autocorrect and stuff like that. Um, and then battery failures. But the very best, the gold standard, is if people are in real space. Because there isn't even the millisecond or you know 20 millisecond phase delay across the country. And there isn't, well, I mean, there's a the speed of sound and air, but all the echoes are organic, the micro expressions are organic, you know, the floor shakes as, as you shift in your chair. Everything fits in real space. Uh, and the more of that you can get, the more you trust it. That's what we mean when we say we trust our senses. We trust ourselves. We trust our balance. But if we don't have that, then the answer to bad digital is more digital, right? That's what a lot of people <laughs> think. So the, this is essentially the dynamic that we found in the paper. And weirdly enough, it's beyond the question of the three-dimensionality of brains. It's, it's more to what it is that you know, creatures go for when their feedback loops fail. And it turns out that the standard thing is if a feedback loop which sought stability in a certain environment, you know, this is what I do to get myself back to where I need to be, and it has something it measures to do that. If the thing it measures is messed with, and its correlation no longer the same as it was when the creature learned to be what it is, now that same control loop can go haywire and basically go into a sort of a death spiral or an addictive feedback loop, something like that. And that's what happens with screen addiction and these digital addictions. Because our instinct, when we are decalibrated, when we, we sense that we can't trust what's going on, our instinct is to look for cleaner, quicker information. Go for the high information density first. Just like a starving person will go for the empty calories. That's mm -hmm. job one. Now, that's fine if you're in the savanna. There aren't many sparkly things to chase. You can't click on anything. I mean, it's, life is boring. If you feel uncertainty in a boring life, you have to look for interesting stuff. It takes a while to get there. But now interesting stuff is a click away. You can forage in hyperspace instead of foraging in real space. And you can get places a lot faster in hyperspace. So the very nature of hyperspace has essentially hijacked our informational appetites for how to cure the problem. So it's not just that digital stimuli are starving us but they provoke a response which necessarily involves consuming ever more of them. So what do we, you're, so a person is having an ambiguous experience online with people or on Facebook. You're saying that they don't just turn off the computer, go outside and find a dog to pet or an old lady <laughs> to talk to. <laughs> yeah, but I guess that is, well, that's an observational fact. And that's the level at which most people would expect it. Yeah, I've seen that. Or then somebody said, well, but my brother doesn't do that, right? So then it becomes an argument over who's seen more of what and who's more trustworthy. We're saying that's missing the point. This is a mathematical inevitability from the structure of the, of the, structure of the problem space. It's, it's also true that we see it happening, but we have to treat it as if it happens for a very deep reason. But what's the person doing online? So they have an ambiguous experience or they can't calibrate. What is what is going for high density information online look like? Yeah, well, it's basically the general structure of addictive loops. And in our paper, we dive all the way back to the way that bacteria can be, quote unquote, addicted to things if you start messing with their environment. So the nature of addiction applies to thermoregulatory stuff and opioids and energy balance and salt concentration, all kinds of things, not just information um, and not just drugs. But the common aspect is it's over-focusing. An addictive loop is where you have a, some kind of a path where what you do creates an environmental situation. Now the environmental situation makes you do more of it. And so as soon as you have a feedback loop where A causes B and B causes A, you're off to the races. 
And so it could be as simple as, you know, I drink and do heroin, so I lose my job. So I drink and do heroin. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So that's the con- that's what these feedback loops look like. The common feature is they're over-focusing. So, for instance, you're always doing the same thing, the cat and the cocaine lever. Now, in the case of informational addictions, you're getting quicker and quicker hits. So, in, in general, if somebody has a digital interaction because they want a quick response, whether it's texting people or posting something on Facebook and then looking for whether people like it, or just clicking on a random news feed or a video of hot people or something, whatever it is, if you're just kind of tooling around trying to find interesting stuff to amuse yourself, that's like the hallmark of the, the leading indicator addiction, the, the dependency on, on quick results as opposed to long-term durable high-resolution results, which is what we really need. Right. And then the... the if it's more like sort of, it's more like Cheetos than food. Exactly. But yes. You get the one Cheeto, and it's like, okay, do I want to turn off the computer, walk across the room in order to get the piece of cheese, or do I just take another Cheeto? It's well. The problem is really that you can taste the Cheeto on the way in. The minute it hits your tongue, it's got Cheetoness all over it, and you're like, yeah, I'm definitely eating something. If you can't tell if it has fiber, it'll take you days to find out if that Cheeto has fiber in it. So you have yeah. almost have to go for the quick hit because it's very hard to evaluate things over the long term. I like the Cheeto analogy too because <laughs> having being a fan of Cheetos, mm-hmm. <laughs> you you know eat the Cheeto and you're like mmm yum Cheetos, and then you know you eat too many because you're just like oh they're so good and you feel gross, <laughs> but you still think like you know I when I was younger I mean I'm not like this anymore but when I was younger it's like oh. I feel gross. Maybe I should eat some candy. <laughs> like, I, the, the funny thing about Cheetos is, like digital tech, Cheetos have been hyper-optimized to be more delicious than any natural thing could ever be. I mean, their fluffiness is a way of bypassing your gastric you know, fullness response and so forth. They've got MSG in all the right places, the right coloring. I mean, I don't know what went into them, but they have been tuned to within an inch of their lives to do exactly that, be delicious. Right, like a Netflix series. Exactly. Yes. yes. Oh, HBO. Yeah, they are. <laughs> they are designed at every scale, from the the half second cut to the multi year trajectory. Right. They're optimized for a, a sense of immediate gratification. Mm-hmm. And compulsion to reengage. It's right. it's it's a it's they're they're optimized ultimately for net re, net revenue, and that folds out as a compromise between say, satisfying our interest in the short term versus provoking us, provoking our interest and failing to satisfy us in the short term and so forth. So Right. So a lot of a lot of what you're talking about is, is you know, I'm sure a lot of people are listening and intuitively nodding in agreement that this is their felt uh-huh. experience uh-huh. of the of particularly the digital landscape. Now, what what do you feel that your work and specifically this paper do to advance the conversation, to ground it or prove something in a way that could potentially lead to substantive change over at Google or Facebook or investment or somewhere? I I think absolutely the biggest single thing we could do is to have real scientists recognize this as a a legitimate intellectual challenge which can be met by first principles, that we actually have a neutral playing field. Because so far, almost every social discussion has gone toward, do you favor, you know, the state or the individual or capital or human rights? You know, one division after another, one category after another, in which there's sort of a zero-sum game. If one one end of the spectrum wins, the other spectrum loses. But for a problem like this, which is not just asking how we treat our bodies, but how can we even communicate about solving the problem? I mean, we're not going to solve this over Twitter. You know, we might not even solve this over podcast, but, you know, how are we going to communicate about the problem if the very nature of the problem is a failure of our communications medium? I mean, that is really deep. Right. The good news is the answers are in math. We've got people at places like CERN who know how to balance hypotheses on a razor edge and they can find a Higgs boson in six particles. You know, it is insane how good our scientific community is with hypothesis management and evaluation when they understand the problem and they're given the support to actually answer it. 
But as with global warming and tobacco, we aren't, scientists aren't always given the freedom to answer questions. But if they do, this problem can absolutely be solved in short order. Your paper then, your paper is basically scientific evidence of what it is that we're feeling? Yeah, I, I, it, now that I'm in my sort of ranty theorist mode, I, I would say beyond evidence. Evidence usually means observation. Mm. And yes, it ha is observation. The, the literature summary matches what we read about in the Atlantic. There's an amazing article in this month's Atlantic about the toll that smartphones have taken on the next generation of teens. And it's sort of suicides in the thousands kind of numbers. Um, so it's, it's horrific and it's absolute, and that is obs observation and those facts are necessary. What we're bringing is, I would say, scientific proof insofar as a mathematical statement can be kind of called a proof. And insofar as we've made mathematical statements in a mathematical journal, then I would be comfortable saying that at this level of granularity, we have offered a mathematical proof of what people are experiencing. And then because we have that proof, you think it helps open the door to more mathematical and scientific uh, resolutions of this problem? Yeah. I mean, what's your call? The, the call to action, I guess, is what I'm asking. The call to action is for computer scientists and anyone who has expertise in signal processing to bring their abilities to bear on refining this problem and understanding the solutions in the clearest way possible. The, the, the laws of information are already on the books. We've been using them for 60 years to build the internet and build this, this economy. And so we know what the equations are. And we have lots of people who are trained to use those equations. We just have to have the wherewithal to do it. But it's not just to make a better Skype, right? Um, well, that's the problem, because a better Skype for Skype means a Skype which gets more revenue out of the users. And, for instance, would upsell, encourage us to upgrade by having low-grade voice quality on the free version. A for, healthier Skype. Yeah, a healthier Skype is what we want, but a higher revenue positivity Skype or higher margin Skype is not what we want. But the other value of our research is uh, that we were able to knit together a bunch of findings in um, experimental science and show how they're related. I just realized, though, the question sort of what effect do we want it to have? I really want to have two effects. I'd like to have one effect on the process of understanding the problem, and that's spurring the scientific and medical community to study it. But I also want to have an effect on the people who are suffering from it. So I'm asking for two effects, and I want the people who are suffering from any kind of digital, you know, damage to get back in three-dimensional space. Our nervous systems recalibrate quite quickly when we are around somewhat natural things in reasonably quiet environments and other people who are, for the most part, supportive and healthy. That is all it takes to recalibrate us. It's just get back into three space, three space and get away from the distracting digital stuff which is causing a problem. So now, at that point, I'm happy if I had those two influences. <laughs> yeah, that's basically the advice. I mean, I'd like to add one thing for, um, you know, some people that we've met are, you know, to use our language, they are very decalibrated. And at that point, interacting with other people is overwhelming. It becomes very stressful. And so the turn to mediated communication makes sense because it feels, um, as you're communicating, it feels safer, but it's exacerbating the problem. And that is one of the reasons why we advocate for going into nature, going into a forest, going into some sort of high entropy natural environment and getting used to that because it is basically still and yet it's giving you all of the calibrating information that you need and spending time there can help you uh, prepare to spend time with other people and find socializing with people in real life less stressful. Do you suspect that part of the reason you are able to uh, bring back these kinds of gems is that you went into the digital realm together. <laughs> you know, you, you are an intimate couple, a husband and wife going in there together might have grounded you in a way that those of us who went in alone did not. Absolutely. I am one of the, the remarkable tests of a theory this simple and this broad is that it shows up with results in places you least expect it. 
And these same, so what we have is sort of like the blueprints of how human communication really works. Not how we say it works or think it works, but how it actually works. And that, of course, applies to people getting caught up in digital interactions and so forth. But it applies to married couples. And just understanding when we need to be in the same place, hearing each other's breath and not talking about anything, not making any symbolic references. Or, for instance, I just wrote a post on our, our site, Organic Bandwidth, called Pingers versus Listeners, analyzing our relationship dynamics, in which I'm a submarine who makes a lot of bing, 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 and I'm constantly shooting off sound waves to gather echoes. Uh, so I'm making a huge racket. And she is the silent submarine. She's sitting in the shadows, listening to all my pings and making no sounds of her own. This is an approximation, of course. And so these are both legitimate styles for gathering information. And yet, you know, when we get in certain kinds of discussion, we disrupt each other. So we can absolutely use these tools to improve our relationship and absolutely being around each other and sensing each other's thoughts and attitudes helped with the collaboration. It's been wonderful. And being able to test some of the insights on each other. And like you said about the, as we were coming up with our, um, you know, working on this paper and it's sort of coming up with the practical application. So, you know, hey, so now what are individuals going to do based on these insights? And we practice them out on each other. And this pinging versus listening distinction uh, has really improved our communication and the, the math behind it is allowing us to be more versatile so that he can be more of a listener, I can be more of a pinger, and that's been a really great uh, side effect of the research, unexpected. Mm -hmm. it, it helps us cut each other slack. And that's what people are gonna need to do with digital communications, just to understand that there are other effects going on, other attitudes, other channel limitations. So you, we just have to assume that the person is a person and is well-intentioned. And a member of Team Human. <laughs> That's exactly. Thanks for joining Team Human. We'll be back in the basement media squat here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests, the work they're doing, resources to get involved, and ways to find the others. Team Human, our last best hope for peace. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.